Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Rome to them, and especially the decline of the Roman Republic, the collapse of it, the takeover by Julius Caesar, was the central political narrative for them in world history. It was their political vocabulary. That's New York Times best-selling author Thomas E. Ricks talking about his new book, First Principles, what America's founders learned from the Greeks and Romans, and how that shaped our country. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publishers of Noble Volunteers, The British Soldiers Who Fought the American Revolution by Don N. Haggist, with a foreword by Rick Atkinson. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is New York Times best-selling author Thomas E. Ricks, talking about his new book, First Principles, what America's founders learned from the Greeks and Romans, and how that shaped our country. Our conversation with Tom Ricks today, I think, is really insightful. Uh, Tom comes from a background of analyzing governments. Uh, He's written a number of books uh, about governments, decision-making, leadership from all aspects of history. So he has a particularly strong insight uh, of the past and how it affects the future. On that same note, the premise of Tom's book is based on the idea that the revolutionary generation, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, had a very strong historical literacy, we'll say, in the people, the events, and the philosophies of the ancient world. Admittedly, we've lost them today. But when you hear him talk about it, and please pick up a copy of his book, a review of that book, by the way, is posted right now at the Journal of the American Revolution website, www.allthingsliberty.com. Check it out. When you read that book, you realize just how important the ideologies of the ancient Greeks and Romans were in the formation of our foundational documents, the Declaration of Independence, the United States Constitution. And because we still abide by the principles of those documents, we should really strive, I think, to understand the ancient thinkers and philosophers that inspired them. This is a great interview. I really enjoyed it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Thomas E. Ricks. Tom Ricks, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. What inspired you to write this book? Well, uh, the election of 2016, to be honest. Uh, the, the morning after the election, it was a gray Wednesday morning where I live on an island in Maine. And I went downstairs and I thought, what just happened here? I don't understand the election of President Trump. There's something I don't understand about this country. And I've always been taught 
that when you don't understand a situation, to go back to fundamentals, go back to first principles. And so I went to my library, and I took down Aristotle's politics, and I read it with the American election. I reread it with the American election in mind. And that led me to read other works of ancient political science, political philosophy, and that eventually led me to read what the founders of the United States and the framers of the Constitution read of the ancient world and how they were influenced by it. The more I did, the more I was struck that we today generally have little understanding of the influence of ancient Greek and ancient Rome on how this country was put together, how it was designed. And I decided I should write a book about this because I'm becoming kind of obsessed by it. How was the classical world regarded in the 18th century? Sure, it's a good question because it was understood very differently. The ancient Greek and ancient Rome that we have in mind are not the ancient Greece and ancient Rome that they thought about. Most notably, they were much more focused on Rome than on Greece. Uh, Rome to them, and especially the decline of the Roman Republic, the collapse of it, the takeover by Julius Caesar, was the central political narrative for them in world history. It was their political vocabulary. Someone who was good was like Cicero or Cato, two of the politicians who tried to stop the collapse of the Republic. Someone who was bad was a Catiline, one of the conspirators, an early conspirator against the Republic, or a Julius Caesar. So they really looked at Rome, and in the background a little bit at Greece, but they saw Greece as a little bit more romantic, uh, less stoical, a little bit more frenzied. Uh, And when they did have preferences in Greece, they generally preferred Sparta over Athens, much different from today. Samuel Adams, for example, said he wished that Boston could become a modern Sparta. Their readings in the ancient world were very different. Um, For example, except for Jefferson, who was really much more Greek-oriented than Rome-oriented, except for Jefferson, they really didn't read the ancient Greek dramatist much. They read a few of the Greeks. They read uh, Xenophon especially. But they focused much more on Roman history, Roman letters, and Roman drama. For example, the, the favorite playwright, the only playwright really read much, from the ancient world was Terence, the Roman comic playwright, who nobody reads today. Uh, But for them, Terence was ancient drama. Uh, By contrast, uh, Euripides, Aeschylus, and so on, really were not seen as part of great literature. That really doesn't come until the 19th century with the Greek revival led by German academics and German romantics. So they think of it uh, as something very important to them. Ancient Roman political history, to them, had the urgency of today's headlines. Because when they looked around, there weren't a lot of ancient, there weren't a lot of republics, a lot of examples for them to look to. How do you put together a republic? Why did ancient republics collapse? They had questions on their minds. For example, Montesquieu, uh, the French political philosopher, who writes an awful lot about the ancient world, Montesquieu, Montesquieu said, that republics could not be big. Well, that was almost like a death sentence for this new United States. If republics can't be big, how do we hold this together? Uh, How do you sustain a republic? And so they looked to ancient history for answers to those questions because there really weren't any many other answers to look for. 
Uh, they didn't want a monarchy. They wanted a republic, something in which the people were sovereign. As an author, you have to make choices all the time, and the founding generation is pretty big. Uh, why did you settle on Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and Madison? Uh, I have to say that those four are not who I began with. I spent a couple of months thinking that I was going to look at Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, and a few others. But one thing I've learned to do with a book is kind of go to experts and smart guys and women in the field and say, here's what I'm thinking about. Does this make sense to you? And I went down to have lunch in Providence, Rhode Island with Gordon Wood, one of my favorite historians of the American Revolutionary Era. And he said, no, he said, don't do Benjamin Franklin. He, he's really of another generation. He's not a good fit for you. Uh, and so I thought, okay, out goes Franklin, in comes Madison. And it was a wonderful choice for me because I really came to enjoy Madison and believe that he's undervalued for his contribution to American history. I've got to say that as I wrote this book, my opinions of Washington and Madison went way up. My opinions of Jefferson and John Adams went way down. How did George Washington utilize classical strategies to really rise and make a name for himself in 18th century colonial Virginia? This is really something that uh, Peter Onuf, um, former University of Virginia historian, uh, inspired me to, to look into. He made the point to me in a conversation that uh, Washington is uneducated, but he's steeped in classical values. Why is that? Well, because those were the values of the elites of colonial society. And you look around, and the person, the ancient Roman, that was the, really the model for them of the public man was Cato, uh, who fights the rise of Julius Caesar and eventually commits suicide rather than su surrender to Caesar. And Cato is seen as rather remote, uh, prudent, frugal, even a bit distant, and rather terse, not a voluble man like Cicero, another great Roman um, role model. And Washington kind of, I think, just picks this up by osmosis in the society of his day. He's not an educated man. Uh, even as an adult, he doesn't read a lot of history. But he senses this, this is the way to go. And I think like a lot of people who are not formally educated but, have, but are intelligent, uh, he became a very good empirical learner. He saw reality around him clearly. He reflected on it. He, he learned from it, and he changed. And it was a good process for him to have because it not only helped him rise in colonial society, it also helped him as a general leading a revolution against the world's leading military power. John Adams and George Washington are very different people, as are Boston and Virginia, very different places. Uh, talk about John Adams' journey. Adams uh, is a fascinating figure to me. In some ways, he's the most modern of these guys. He wears his feelings on his sleeve, whereas Washington strives and works hard to contain his temper and become a remote, uh, majestic figure. Adams is just scrambling around. He's telling everybody what he thinks all the time, even when they don't want to hear. Um, Richard Brookhiser was on television with me this morning, and he said Adams looked at Washington and said he knows when to be silent. Adams never knew when to be silent. He was too 
nakedly ambitious. He was too wanting to rise in the world. He was too scratchy and itchy. Uh, he starts off as a school teacher in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, he's miserable, hates the job, wants to become a great man, wants to become the modern American Cicero. And he does. He rises up. Uh, it's difficult for him. He never really gets anybody to become a mentor for him. He's never a protege. Whereas Washington, Jefferson, and Madison all had older men who kind of took them under their wing and taught them and guided them and helped them rise. Adams never has that. He always has to sort of fight his own way, try to mentor himself, partly because he is so irascible. At one point, Benjamin Franklin says in a letter that Adams is a brilliant man, an honest man, and a good man, but in some ways he is absolutely insane. And I think that's why he has such a mixed reputation today. I think Adam's reputation these days is actually a little bit inflated. I think that the David McCullough uh, biography, uh, while very nice, was very soft on Adams. It was really more about this wonderful marriage that, he, that John Adams had to Abigail Adams, an impressive, brilliant, strong woman. Uh, but, but it was more about that marriage than about Adams' whole career. I think Adams winds up uh, in the presidency as a disaster. His greatest um, achievement is in the re revolutionary era, bringing the revolution to come to pass. I think during the war, he was not particularly helpful to George Washington in his commentary on military affairs. I think Adams thought he knew a lot about military affairs. He did not. And then, as I said, he's a lousy presidency. He winds up deciding that people who newspapers that criticize him should be shut down, and he starts throwing anti-Adams editors into jail, which I think was a terrible mistake. He does one great last thing, though, and it's something we can think about today. He turns over political power to the opposition peacefully. He loses the election. Jefferson becomes president, and Adams leaves town. Now, being John Adams, he does it peacefully, but not gracefully. He doesn't attend Jefferson's inauguration. He gets on the 4 a.m. coach to, to Baltimore and leaves. In your book, you mentioned the American mind. Uh, what was the American mind, and what did that mean to Thomas Jefferson? It's actually a phrase of Thomas Jefferson's, the American mind. He's explaining later in his life how he came to draft the Declaration of Independence. And in it, he says that he wasn't really speaking for Thomas Jefferson. He was trying to speak for the American mind. And I think that's one reason it's such a marvelous document. I have a lot of problems with Thomas Jefferson, but I think the Declaration of Independence is the single most important document in American history. It also is a great piece of literature uh, as, an, as an expression of Enlightenment thinking. Um, and I would say, in particular, an Enlightenment thinking inspired by the Greek philosopher Epicurus. Uh, it really is, to me, an Epicurean document about happiness and about democratic happiness. That He takes Locke's, uh, John Locke, the English philosopher, he takes Locke's phrase, uh, life, liberty, and estate, that is life, liberty, and property, and he changes it to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's such a democratic change because to have property is just, to be, you know, to hold land is the privilege of, of a few. 
but everybody, if they have land or not, can pursue happiness. So he redefines and broadens what the political arena is about, who it's important for, and who it is for. It very much speaks to we the people, American sovereignty, that the people own, own the country. Uh, and so when he writes the Declaration, he steps away from Thomas Jefferson, the writer. Uh, he writes much more plainly than, than his usual style. There are very few classical allusions. Um, the language is not flowery. It's very straightforward and direct. And I think it's important where he wrote it. He wrote it sitting by a window uh, in an apartment he had rented in Philadelphia. And the window's open, and outside he can hear sailors and bricklayers and farmers coming to town. He can hear American voices. And it's very different, I think, from the voices of enslaved people that he would have heard had he been writing it back at his home in Monticello, Virginia. One part of your book I found very interesting was when you mentioned that you believe the Revolutionary War directly challenged the classical model. How did it do so? Sure. The, at the core of the classical model, the bright thread that runs through the writings of the founders, is the word virtue. If you go to Founders Online, which is a project of the National Archives, where they've taken all the words of the people in the founding generation and put them online, their letters, their speeches, their pamphlets, their diaries, uh, it's all searchable. And so you can instantly go and look and see virtue is a word they use constantly if I recall correctly, much more than freedom or liberty as individual words. Virtue to them is the essence of public life, and it basically means public-mindedness, putting the public good before your own self-interest. And very early in the war, George Washington begins to act like a political philosopher, which is interesting in the middle of a, for a general in the middle of a war. He says, you know, I don't think this virtue thing is working for us. And he starts starting to pick up on a thought that is developed later by Hamilton and most of all by Madison, which is you can't build this country on the notion of virtue, of relying on public virtue. People have self-interest. And Madison comes along and says, okay, you can't have virtue. Let's use vice to balance vice. Let's balance interest against interest. And he takes the idea of checks and balances, and, a, and he says the larger the republic, the more interest you have, the more you're going to need to reach out and balance your interests with someone else, the more incentive you have to compromise, to make deals, to come together. And, Madison says, if you can't make deals, if you can't build coalitions, if you can't find compromises, then you're going to have gridlock. So I think to Madison's mind, our current uh, gridlock in Washington is not a bug, it's a feature. He so dispersed power in the structure they came up with in the Constitution. Power is dispersed across the federal government through three branches, through within the legislative branch, two houses, and then, of course, also between the federal government and all the state governments. So power is all over the place, and if you want to do anything, you need to pull together power. You need to accumulate power. You can't just rule like a king. Nobody has enough power to act like a king. And I think this is one of the surprises uh, for Donald Trump as president, a profoundly ignorant man who probably has never read the Constitution, how little power the presidency actually has. 
that you can do a lot of executive orders and such, but you're constantly going to find the judiciary reviewing your, your decisions and saying some of them are illegal. And tr- again and again, Donald Trump has run into problems with the courts and, and has gotten quite, quite nasty about the Supreme Court, even though it's a quite conservative court these days. And likewise, uh, I was shocked that Nancy Pelosi basically said, I run the House of Representatives, I'm Speaker of the House, I don't work for you, you're going to have to negotiate with me. And that was a constant, I think, shock to Trump, who thought he was kind of going to be a king who, who um, kind of had to ask the people for help sometimes. And that, that's simply not what the presidency is. James Madison will have a very storied career. He'll have his hand in a lot of important events and moments. Uh, how did the classical world influence him? Madison is fascinating here because he's almost a new generation. He and Hamilton, uh, younger than the people who made the revolution. And Hamilton and Madison go together for me because they're both more nationalists than they are state people. Um, Madison, for example, doesn't go to College of Virginia. He goes off to Princeton, which was designed as a national college, which drew students from up and down the eastern seaboard and even from foreign countries. Uh, Princeton, he chooses Princeton partly because I think of its radicalism. It was the, like, like University of California at Berkeley was in the 1960s, Princeton was the, that radical college of the 1760s when he was there. Madison uh, approaches the classical world in a more scholarly fashion, interestingly. I think because it is kind of beginning to seep away, but he wants to kind of grab what he can from it. So when Thomas Jefferson goes off to Europe, uh, one of the requests that Madison makes is, send me trunk loads of books that you can find about ancient political history. And for four years, Madison sits on the second floor of his house at Montpelier, Virginia, in a library studying ancient political history. And a lot of the Constitution comes out of that. He's trying to address these questions. How do you hold a republic together? Why do the ancient republics collapse? What were the leagues or confederations of the ancient Greek city-states, and how do they work? So, for example, uh, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. I believe it's Amphi. Cytonic League, uh, one of the kind of almost a NATO of the ancient Greek world. It was a league of city-states. And it had big city-states and small city-states. But it decided that every city-state, no matter how big or small, would have two votes. And that's why the United States Senate comes about, where the small states and the big states both have two votes. So Wyoming today, with I think about... um, 250,000 registered voters, has two senators, and California, with I think about 50 times that, um, 12 million or so uh, registered voters, also has two senators. Uh, I think they'd be a little bit surprised at the extremity of difference. Uh, Delaware was the smallest state back then when they were writing the Constitution. Virginia was the largest, and the disparity was about 12 to 1 in population. So it's gotten much bigger. So Madison kind of uses the classical world in a scholarly way, almost as a political science, but also as a politician, as they put together and design the Constitution, the house we live in now. But Madison has one more, I think, great political achievement, which is in the 1790s, 
faction is developing, and they've all learned from studying the ancient Greek uh, Roman world that what brought down the Roman Republic were two things, faction and corruption. And Adams, for example, as president, is very worried by faction emerging. And Madison comes along and says, time out, fellas. Faction is a natural expression of interest. It's what we designed in here. Don't try to, try to squelch faction. You're not going to squelch faction. Allow it to emerge and allow it to balance each other. And so Madison kind of begins uh, early on with Jefferson, the development of an opposition, the early political parties. They're not really formal political parties. They don't have conventions. They don't have primaries. They don't have platforms. Uh, that all comes later. But they do have newspapers. And out of the newspapers of the 1790s, becomes the stirrings of the American political system. And John Adams, as I said earlier, freaks out and decides we can't have this and starts throwing newspaper editors in jail. Do you feel that the classical model was truly compatible with the unique circumstances of the 18th century in America? Uh, and how do you think the founders did at implementing some of those ancient strategies? I think they did well briefly, but they learned also very quickly that a lot of what they believed wasn't going to work, that virtue really wasn't going to work as the basis for how you ran a government, that people would look to their self-interest and to taking care of their families and maybe accruing a little wealth or land, that there had to be a different approach. And then in the, in the early 19th century, the market revolution comes along, Andrew Jackson come, comes along, the Industrial Revolution comes along, and classical values basically get steamrollered. But as a way of putting together a revolution, of giving them a common vocabulary to have a revolution and then to design a country after that, the classical model worked for them. It gave them something in common when there were so many other things that could have torn them apart, the regional differences between North and South and so on. They also, and a review of my book pointed this out, uh, probably more, in a way, I wish I had more in the book, that they weren't always accurate in their views of ancient history. Uh, one place they were clearly inaccurate was their view that, well, Aristotle said that slavery was okay, so slavery in America is okay. And where that was incorrect was that the American system of slavery, race-based, chattel slavery, was very different and far harsher than most ancient forms of slavery. Uh, in Rome, for example, slaves had rights, uh, whereas in America, the Dred Scott decision by the Supreme Court explicitly said that slaves have no rights uh, that, that white America has to respect. And uh, it, it, it really, it, the, 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 let me back up here a second. The, the, the Roman slave could be freed and the Roman slaves' children could hold public office. And that's a process that took over, took, has taken many decades for America to take on board since emancipation to deal with. Um, it happened briefly right after the Civil War, but then white supremacy kind of took apart Reconstruction. Jim Crow is imposed and black Americans are at best treated as second-class citizens for another century until the Civil Rights Revolution. So we are still living with some of the mistakes that the founders made, partly because of their mis misinterpretations of ancient history, which is, yet again, another reason 
to, to look at uh, their understanding of the ancient world, where they got it right and where they got it wrong. What can we do as a nation to recapture these values? I have to believe that when you write a book like this, you're trying to nudge us in the right direction. One thing we can do is look to the documents they left behind, the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. The Declaration of Independence is a beautiful document and well worth reading, partly because in it um, you get start getting the definitions of what an American is. And then in the Constitution and the amendments to it, you get even more of a definition of what an American is. Uh, It is un-American to violate somebody's First Amendment rights. Uh, It is un-American for a congressional candidate to slug a reporter. It is un-American for students on a college campus to prevent a speaker from speaking simply because they disagree with that speaker. Uh, we, We can define what it is to be an American. And the wonderful thing is that somebody whose family has been here for 250 years and somebody who became a citizen yesterday have exactly the same rights. Uh, That this is a society uh, built on equal justice before the law. And when that happens, it is an American, good American thing to do. Often, we do not have equal justice before the law, as the Black Lives Matter um, movement argues and argues correctly. And all too often, equal justice is given uh, lip service, but not really followed. Um, so it, we can look at these people to see how we can do better. There are specific phrases we can look to. Again and again in American history, you see people looking back to uh, the words of the Declaration of Independence, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. It's quoted by Getty, or re- referred to by Lincoln at Gettysburg. Uh, it's invoked by the women suffragists as they put together their movement. Harvey Milk, beginning the gay liberation movement, quotes it, and most famously, perhaps, Martin Luther King invokes it in his I Have a Dream speech. So the Declaration of Independence as a statement of American aspiration is a living document that we can apply every day. The Institution, let me back up, the Constitution also has, I think, some words in it that we need to pay more attention to. Uh, Twice in the Constitution, appears the phrase, the general welfare. By that, the people who wrote it meant the public good, the common good. And I think we need to think more about that. We have let the market dominate our economy and our politics too much. And sometimes there are things more important than the market, like human lives. When people die because they can't afford health care, that offends the general welfare. And I think we need to reflect on that more, that the fundamental law of the land talks about the general welfare in a way that we do not apply it today. So I think we need to think more about the common good uh, as much and and think a a little bit less about individual rights, and especially individual property rights. Tom Ricks, thank you for joining us. Can I offer you one final thought? Uh, One final thought here is if the founders came back and looked at this society today, uh, I think, first of all, they'd be embarrassed at what a problem they caused by writing slavery into the Constitution, how, how persistently that has been a problem for this country, leading to a devastating civil war. Um, 
not a um, hundred years after they they write the Constitution. But they come back also and look at us, and I think they would worry that we have become an oligarchy. They were very familiar with oligarchies. They'd studied them. Oligarchy, the, the rule of a country by its wealthy portion, I think is what we have increasingly. It has the trappings of democracy. You could call it a democratic oligarchy. But as Bernie Sanders likes to say, these days, uh, Congress doesn't regulate Wall Street. Wall Street regulates Congress. I think they, the founders would be shocked at the role that, that campaign finance plays in this country. They would see that as corrupt, profoundly corrupt, especially the way that corporations can dominate politics and can get people elected to office. Money has always been important in American politics, but I think it's now it's more important than ever. And I think they'd really be bothered by that, and they would point out that it is not consistent with the country they designed. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>